Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 62 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And Ruben, HRV Homes. All right. So it's just the three of us today. Topic of conversation is this or that. Have you guys ever used beard oil before? Negative. Oh, I shave. It just gets itchy and then I immediately quit. I'm looking around. I, I guess it's like beard grooming is a whole like, like underground movement um, come to finding. Is this a quarantine beard that you're uh, sporting, Dan, or do you intend to keep this? Quarantine slash just laziness mm-hmm. slash I'm just growing it out for the winter. You kind of look like Ted Kaczynski. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's not that long yet. Or gray. <laughs> but... Some time I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to like manage it and get it under control. And uh, my wife says that I need beard oil. Is this like a preview of if we get a Manscapes uh, sponsorship? <laughs> Don't haven't they been trying to reach out to you? Uh, I think that's a different topic for a different location of the body. <laughs> I can't grow anything. Grow facial hair. Yeah, this is about as furry as you'll see me. I look like a broken piece of sandpaper right now. Well, I think that's a good segue into this or that because- (laughs) How um, is it a good segue? Because you guys are so diametrically different in terms of, I think the word is hirsu, uh, body hair. (laughs) (laughs) So someone uh, had commented online when we posted this as a uh, prompt for some viewer feedback. They said, what the hell is the point? A guessing game of what's cheaper or what's more toxic? Question mark. So I thought uh, it'd be good to just, before we get into it, just answer that. Uh, this is, this is a uh, game where we're going to look at things holistically. We're going to talk about the pros and cons of each, but really at its core, this is what being a developer is about. There are 10,000 questions of this or that as you go through a project. From the very beginning to the end, it, they're always difficult. Some of them are obvious, but others can be a little bit more gut-wrenching. And it isn't always about what's cheaper, right? I mean, yeah. obviously the cost is a factor in any development or any developer, but it's also comes down to the type of build and the location. There's so many, like you said, there's so many different factors and it's just, I, I got a little angry about that comment. No, I mean, I, well, maybe it was sarcasm, guys. Don't read into it too I mean, much. User, user error, familiarity. These are things that I think of like, is this a product that my guys are familiar with uh, or is this likely to to create a problem later. Um, you know, the quality of it, certainly the cost, but, you know, just a couple quick ones for me where we're framing a project in Dorchester right now. You know, do you want to use um, typical plywood roof sheathing or do you want to go with a zip roof sheathing, which gives you sort of just one more layer of uh, security in terms of waterproofing or, you know, KD strapping or resilient channel. And these are all just decisions. What are you going with on your roof? I actually went with the zip zip roof sheathing at the gables. I just feel like ice damming is a real thing and I'm doing everything I can to prevent that from happening. And so if I spend an extra thousand dollars on that, I think it's good money. Have you used yeah. blue skin at all? You know, we can jump right into it. Just talk exterior, this or that. We go Tyvek or zip wall or blue skin. So this, that, or that. <laughs> this or that or that. that, or that. <laughs> Dan, Tyvek um, or blue skin? I think I'll, or zip wall. 
a lot of these are going to come down to locate, like a lot of these are going to be build specific, right. And location specific. Um, I think that we've used all three on builds in the past. I, I don't like, I don't like Tyvek. I think it's just, I agree. I think, that's like your, that's like your budget builder grade stuff. That's like where you're good, better, best. That's like you're good. If, if you've installed it right. If you've, ins- I, and, and that's the problem with Tyvek, I believe is that like at the interface with windows and stuff, I, I I've seen problems and also it, it causes well, like, a delay in your schedule. The big benefit of, I think zip wall is that as soon as you have the zip up and your seams are taped, you can start electrical and HVAC because you know you don't need your cider out there on pump jacks and have the whole building with house wrap. But again, that comes down to quality of install. I still think all three of them suffer from that. So they all need to be installed properly. I think what gives you the best seal is the blue skin, but it's the most yeah. expensive. And then you've got your Tyvek, but you need to have your tape seams properly put in place. Blue skin is also a pain to install though. It is. And half the people don't install Tyvek, right? They just do staples, but you need those special staples with the green kind of like thumb sized uh, piece that's attached to it. Otherwise you can rip it or, or breach the uh, water membrane. Right. And it can only be exposed to the sun for so long. You see guys who put that up and then side eight months later, it's like, no longer oh, by, an, air, an effective air and vapor barrier. Well, by by then, half of it's been ripped off from the wind anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So another reason why I think that that's, the, that's certainly your budget option. But uh, what I like about blue skin is also that uh, you can very easily see any defects. You're standing on the ground and you look up. You know if there's a problem or not. There's an area that isn't blue. Yeah. Yeah. But there could be like a lot of... Blue skin can be a pain in winter weather months where, mm-hmm. cause like the glue has to be at a certain temperature and it, it might, you might not get it to adhere properly if it's not the correct uh, temperature outside. So it can be, it, 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 it has its pros and cons. I think all of these options have all of the pros and cons. Now it's true also with the Tyvek. I feel like you're already hanging the siding, your sheathing, excuse me. So you're either doing OSB or plywood or whatever the exterior is. Then you got to go over it with the, with the Tyvek. You also have to Tyvek tape it, right? You have to use that red tape, technically. You, you, should, you should tape your Tyvek. Right. So you're already adding an extra step from a time standpoint. So whatever savings you're getting from a cost of um, uh, sheathing standpoint, you know, presumably not using zip, you're kind of double uh, going twice, doing covering the same square footage twice with the Tyvek and then possibly a third time with the taping if you don't do it all at once. Right. And just, I guess, a couple quick things on zip wall. Roll the tape. You need seven pounds of pressure per foot uh, on that tape. So it's not sufficient just to push your palm against the tape. You really want to have a roller out there. Um, and then, you know, I do get nervous about bird mouths. So like the idea is that someone's, there's a little defect in the tape application and it's a little bit proud or there's a, um, an area where water could get back and behind and now it's coming in. So or if like your two pieces of sh- or of of zip sheathing don't like match up perfectly is what you're saying. And there's like kind of like a, it could be like a small, you know, there could be like a eighth of an inch like yeah. difference in terms of one could be more proud than the other or one could be recessed well, more than the other. It's called a fish mouth, right? And it's like a, when you're taping and think of it like a, a fish hook in the cheek and it's creating that little gap towards the sky yep. and maybe water works its way through. But um where we do a lot of, uh, where we've done blue skin though, is uh, like the fire sheathing. Cause mm-hmm. obviously zip doesn't make 
a fire, I guess, rated. fire yeah. rated uh, sheathing. So where we have to use the fire rated pieces of sheathing, we've done the blue skin on that. Right. And so just to back up, if you're within three feet of a property line, typically you're going to go with a fire rated sheathing. So you'll often see it painted white and um, more expensive and an extra step. But so just in summation, what <laughs> is the uh, this, that, or that? Dan, you go first. Quick answer. I think it's a, I think it's a combination of zip and blue skin, depending on right? the build. I'd go zip. I trust zip all the way. Blue skin only if necessary or in high risk areas. I'm picking zip wall. Huber, if you want to talk about a sponsorship, we're available. <laughs> yeah, but what if you, again, what if you're within three feet of another building? You can't use zip. <laughs> we're, we're trying to get a sponsorship right now, Dan. <laughs> All right. Back I to think we're, I think we're taking that out of, you know, if there's no proximity or, or distance. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a couple of really good questions came through Instagram. A couple related to just general real estate development. So I'll, I'll kick it off here. Solo or joint venture? Dan and Ray, you guys have very specific knowledge on this topic. Uh, all right. Well, I'll kick it off in terms of, I mean, I guess Dan and I are sort of a joint venture, 50-50 partnership. Have we done a joint venture with any other entities? Not that I recall. I don't believe we have. We've all been solo. I think... Can you, can you define joint venture for I, people, please? I think... I think well, so joint venture in the technical sense means sort of two companies coming together for the purposes of developing a project. However, I, I interpret this question more as like solo or partnership. Oh, I see. So if it was me versus me and Dan. Choose Boston versus HRV. Yeah, choose Boston. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I don't know. You, you tell us. How do you like having your hands in all aspects of it? I, I like the solo play. I'm certainly biased, but I just, I often feel like you're going to give away half of everything you make at the end of the year. And uh, you have to do twice the volume to make the same money. So if you're going to have a partner, you better both be able to take the reins and deliver two times as many successful projects. I think it depends though. I think if you're starting out and you don't have any money and you need someone that either has capital or has bank relationships or can get a loan, I think that having a partner is is good. I also think that there needs to be defined roles and responsibilities and types of decision-making authority needs to all be ironed out prior to the partnership. So for instance, we've partnered before and it's more just people investing in the project, but they're technically partners because they have equity. And, you know, we upfront define that, you know, okay, we're partnering on this, but we, as in Ray and I have full control over the entire project, full control over finishes and what's going in and what's not going into the project. We have final say on sellout prices, et cetera, et cetera. So we would want, if we're going to partner, we would want full control because we've run into situations. We have tried it the other way and it just gets, it gets messy very quickly. Okay. Yeah. I did misspeak earlier. We, we have done in that sense of the definition, we've done a number of partnerships, uh, mostly where the partner to our company has provided the financial backing to get things going or, or portion of it. But typically, as Dan mentioned, we don't 
like to give up more of the general contracting side of things or especially not the selection of finishes. So maybe it's like a limited partnership or maybe it's like a joint venture. I guess you could call it a JV. Yeah. I'll I'll add one thing to this and then wrap it up. But if you are picking a partner because you need a baby blanket, go out and buy a baby blanket. It is far less expensive than giving away half of the project. I just think too many guys out there want someone to hold hands with and make some of these difficult decisions with. Whereas baby blanket, I haven't heard that one. So, so basically somebody that knows what they're doing, has the experience and needs to help them. Maybe, maybe not. I just think like I, I often see groups of, you know, let's say two or three developers who are all together and they're all at the building department together, or they're all on site. And it's like, what could you all be adding to this project in terms of efficiency? Like you're just there to kind of give each other a little bit of confidence and you know, I'm oversimplifying because certainly uh, a multitude of of opinions is always better than one, and and there is something to be said for that. But I just yeah, but there's also something to be said for too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Okay, so I'll say that when you're starting off, just like when Dan and I first started off, we did a lot of things together, and then as we grew, we realized that that wasn't the best use of our time. Right. So in order to cover more bases, or essentially to the to the inverse of your argument, Mark, where, you know, there's one mouth to feed and and you can, you know, you have everything for yourself at the end of the project. If there's two of you, you should be able to do twice as much and and it should all equal out. So it's like a hundred percent of one person or a hundred percent of two people doing different things. And somewhere the math doesn't work there, but point being that I think it's okay to do the same stuff as a, as a team together. Then each of you, each of the people can see and appreciate what's going to happen. But at some point you do need to step away from that model and work on different unique parts of the business. Maybe pick your favorites, I guess. So in conclusion, if you had to pick <laughs> joint venture, man. Okay. All right. All joint day long. So, so at least, solo. at least one, at least one person. Yeah. Solo. Oh, well, I, well, Solo meaning <laughs> right. just Ray's H- eyes just like I, I'm I'm cut no <laughs> solo meaning just HR ventures no okay one else. understood right okay so this is more another this that or that it's solo <laughs> partnership or joint venture and you yeah I I don't like the joint ventures where it's one or more people you know basically unrelated parties okay. two coming together and and doing one that's always more risky because you've got different levels of experience and that sort of thing right. and, um, and yeah, go ahead. And I'm going to pick solo. And on top of everything else I said, think about how much you could hire that expertise for. So sometimes someone says, oh, I made him a partner. I gave him 50% of the deal. He's an architect. He's really attuned with detailed drawings. Okay. Well, what would it have cost you to hire an architect? What did giving away 50% of the project cost? Right. So. So, so okay. Well, last thing I'll add there is, you know, what if you have a financial partner where all they yeah. do is bring the money and fund the deals? I mean, that's worth a yeah. significant amount, especially if you don't have to worry about essentially uh, any financing contingencies in your offer. You know that they're good, right? Right, right. That's so, a, that's certainly a different, uh, you know. Different so there's different flavors of partnerships, I guess, or joint ventures. Yeah. Okay. MLS so, or off-market? Hmm. Well, MLS, well, so... Is this on like the acquisition side, the yeah, disposition I, side? Like what's like, what, how let's are we start with acquisition. Deals? You're fine. You're finding deals. Should you be 
are there good deals on MLS? Are all off-market deals good? What are, what are your thoughts on comparing and contrasting? Well, I think most of deals in general aren't good, whether they're on market or off market. <laughs> right. So you got to you got to weed through the crap to find the gold. But you, you, uh, you mean the you mean the off market deals that you know one of us will get, and then the next either one of us will get it. Send a message to each other. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Anybody see a deal in uh, Dorchester? Yeah, right. I saw that one. I think you can get a deal in both on MLS or off market. It's just, just you know. I sometimes think that uh, off-market deals are not always incredible value, right? Like if something's been on MLS, it has the benefit of realizing market value, right? There's thousands and thousands of eyeballs on it, looking at the price and then and then bidding to it. Like, and off-market, so I guess the, the counter-argument to that is off-market, you can get something below market value. But at the same time, you kind of do have to do a gut check to go, wow, is this price too much? Like, am I... If this were to go on MLS, would people be willing to pay this? And I've seen many, many instances where it's like, wow, that's an insane number. And, uh, you know, people, there is this sort of appeal to an off-market deal, an allure that uh, isn't always justified is all I'm trying to say. I think there's different kinds of off-market deals as well. So this is another instance of this, that, or that, because there's almost two flavors of off-market. There's something that's off-market where essentially a seller is working with an agent and the agent's trying to pick through their Rolodex and see if they can keep the full side of the commission. And then there's off-market where you've sourced the deal as you know on your own terms, whether it's direct mail, door knocking, ads, website, whatever. So I think there's two different flavors there. But like Dan said, it's it's all about what the numbers are at the end of the day. So it doesn't really matter where it comes from. It matters what it looks like. So to summarize, can you do both? Is there this or that, this or that? Like, there's not and, there's no and here. Yeah, I mean, you, cer- you certainly would pursue both, but uh, I guess um, I'm not going to pick one or the other here for the reasons you stated. <laughs> but I'm just going mean, to caution that not all off market deals are great deals. And no, agreed, agreed. And on the sales side too, I've tried to pump. I know a lot of real estate developers who have tried to pump product off market pre MLS for numbers that they didn't even think they could get when it goes on. And it's, it's a story. It's this like, this product isn't widely available. We're only being offered to you. Um, and this is the number. And as the buyer of that finished product, I think they have to do the same gut check. Like, Ooh, is that a good, it's, it's much harder to parse out as to whether what you're paying is fair. Yeah. I mean, as a, on the acquisition side, I, the only thing, one of the the benefits that I like about off-market deals is to your point, your competition is not going to be as high potentially as if it was on the MLS and has thousands and thousands and thousands of eyeballs on it. So, I mean, that's one of the potential pros for an off-market deal. But again, to your point, it's like, don't think that every off-market deal is a good deal. Moving on to interior finishes. Wait, 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 what about, we didn't hit up the, the first debt, one. Debt or equity? No, Backstreet Boys are in sync. Oh, Backstreet Boys are in sync. That was a great question. To which I responded, would you rather always feel like you have to pee or never know that you have to pee before it happens? And I've given this a lot of consideration. <laughs> and? It's definitely 
the latter, right? Like I could just wear an adult diaper and and that solves the problem. But I, walking around feeling like you always have to pee would be just torture. I'm so you're saying you you're you're saying you're not deciding. No, I am deciding. It's I would much rather never know when I have to pee. Cuz you cuz you can solve with an adult diaper. Yeah, but then you're uh, that's gross. Right. Let's move on. Yeah. So were we going to talk you, about gender equity? Tell me tell me about that. Uh, we'll revisit that when you have kids and you've changed diapers for a couple of years. All right, fair. So are you saying Backstreet Boys? Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not understanding. Are you picking? Uh, I, look, Backstreet Boys is unequivocally the better band. They sold more records. You can argue. You know. It's not about what they sold more. It's about your personal taste. I'm going in sync for my wife and because oh. JT, you know, right, right. He There's went that. out on his own. If he didn't, if he didn't sync up with them, then he wouldn't have done all this other cool stuff potentially. There is that. That's a good point. So that brings us to finished basement or unfinished basement. Ray. Finished basements are okay if you don't have the space elsewhere. But if I had the choice, I'd probably stay unfinished. Or maybe do, I know I'm probably cheating the rules already, a portion of it finished, but not all of it. And it's mainly for like water concerns or moisture concerns, because I feel like no matter what you do, you can never fully escape the fact that at some point water is going to get in there. You can put the French drain, you can put the membrane wrap around it, you can have all these safeguards, but at some point the thing's going to fail or a pipe will burst or something will happen, then you got to basically rip out your basement and do it over. Yeah. I had this conversation with a friend today, actually, and I was recommending do the first 18 inches of drywall in a, in green board in a mold resistant drywall, and then do your flooring in a uh, wood plank tile or maybe a vinyl. But just the idea is that whatever you're putting there is likely a bandaid. And when you get that hundred year storm, which seems to happen every five years, these days, then, you know, it, it, you may see some water down there. And so just make sure that it can, uh, it's not a catastrophe. Hey, how about building out your wall with like 18 to 24 inches space? So you can basically walk the perimeter between the foundation and your interior wall. What are your thoughts on that? What do you mean? Almost building the space smaller than the footprint. You follow, you follow the footprint and you go in about 18 to 24 inches. This way here, it's almost like a vertical crawl space versus horizontal. What would the purpose of that be? so that you can have better ventilation and still keep your insulation and you'd be able to see and monitor if there were any potential water issues from the foundation. No. What are you talking about? Water, right, water, water can come up from the ground. That's the most pernicious type. You know, water running down your side walls can be handled by a French drain. It's when you're in the water table and it's pumping through your slab and your house is acting like a boat that you just, you don't stand a chance. Well, if I knew I had high water, I definitely wouldn't finish it. If I, if I was in a dry area, yeah, I'd finish it. Yeah. So maybe that's my answer. Well, my friend was doing something cool. He's putting sump pumps on solar with battery backup. Because we all know that generators aren't a great solution in a really big storm. Well, you need my to parents have, have battery back. My parents have battery backup. I mean, my parents have generator and battery backup for their um, sumps. Belt and suspenders. And there needs to be more than one sump, and you should probably also add a water sensor. So if it exceeds a certain tolerance or, or basically once the sump breaks down or if it's overloaded, you get an alert so you can take evasive action. So going back to the initial well, question, over the place. this or that, no, I, I would prefer 
a finished, I would like a finished basement or a partially finished basement in a single family home. But in a, in the instance where it's in the city and space is limited from a condo development play, if I could avoid it to raise point, I would prefer it because that, it just scares me. I mean, as a real estate developer, I have to say finished basement because let's assume that it is the hardest part of your build. It's the most expensive price per foot because of all these precautions. And you're not going to get the same price per foot. And you're not going to get the same price, but still assume that it's instead of 225 a foot, you're spending 350 a foot. I should hope that the product you're building sells for more than 350 a foot. And so you're making money by finishing that basement, assuming, you know, you can in terms of zoning. You know what I mean? Like, I think you have to take all foot spread. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you have to take the space, but no, that's fair. Well, in, in, yeah. in, yeah. Cause you, I mean, if you're I'll talking t- about multifamily development, then yes, you want to, you want to capitalize on every sellable square foot you can. And quick segue, when you're talking new construction and you are considering as to whether you want to build a finished basement or not, I think one of the biggest considerations is what is your foundation? If you plan, if you have good soil and it's just 10 feet down or nine feet down and you can excavate out whatever urban filler crap you're going to encounter first to get down to that good bearing, and then you can use conventional spread footings and a slab on grade, then you have to provide a basement. You're going to take all that dirt out anyway. Why would you not avail yourself of that space? Well, one Um, one reason would be if you have to hit parking requirements and you literally won't have the ability to. Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's kind of like option C, but I'm saying that if you have helical piles or you're not intending to go export all of that dirt, then the calculus is starting to get very different because you know, now maybe I can dig four feet for frost, put in a grade beam, drill in my helical piles or whatever I'm going to do. But uh, new construction, I would, I would be very swayed by whatever I have to do on account of my foundation and my geotechnical considerations. Even if it's an unfinished basement or only if you're finishing it? No, I mean, even if it's unfinished, I'm not going to bring the dirt back to, to provide an unfinished, uh, you know, an, an unoccupied space. If I'm going to hog out all that dirt and I'm going to go down 10 feet, I'm going to finish a basement or provide. But, you, but yeah, yeah. But you might not. Okay. Well, this is a good transition to the next topic, right? So, what, what you, did we just, so you decided, Mark, finished basement. Yeah, I, I, I would say I would say finished basement as well. As a developer, yes. Uh, as a consumer, as no. a consumer, it depends. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Where were you going next, Ray? Oh, we were talking about on new builds and whatnot. So new build versus Reno, right? Ooh, yeah, I like that. That came from Instagram as well. Yeah, thank you everybody on Instagram who shouted out all these uh, topics. I mean, nobody wants to hear everything that we just come up with. So new build all the way. New build all the way. I really like your perspective on this because I feel like you guys have really started with like the cosmetics to the total gut renovation to the new build and you've done everything in between. So, um, Oh, new build, definitely. Maybe, maybe I'll preface this with depending on the product, right? So if it's a, a, a product that you're going to be selling, new all the way. If it's a product that you'll be renting, then I'm okay with either. I'd prefer, obviously, a rental, a, a renovation for a rental building if it's if the bones are good and mm-hmm. most of it is good. Two non-obvious benefits of a renovation over new construction 
are one, if you can maintain the existing utilities coming into that building, what a way to avoid one of the most massive headaches, right? Like if you can keep your gas service and you can keep your electric service, the world is good. And then secondly, existing to remain is four magical words, right? That you you can sidestep a lot of accessibility requirements, features of the code, stairs that aren't 36 inches wide, landings that have uh, winders, which don't meet current code, openings within proximate three feet of the property line, all of those things. All you have your to say ener- is- Your energy requirements are much yeah. less stringent. Yeah, just note it on your existing drawings. Make sure you capture. That's actually a pretty good lesson on a reno. Sometimes you include like a little demolition drawings or existing floor plans. Just make note of every goddamn opening in that exterior <laughs> envelope. Because you can all- Go ahead. Keep no, because when you go back for it and you take that window or you reuse that, that ventilation, even if it's a boarded up old window, it was a window and make sure it's noted because um, it, it may come into play at inspection time. And you can get, I think you can get way more, the, the new stretch energy code, I think you can get way more back on a renovation these days than new construction. Meaning what you can do now is you can do a, a before and an after, and then they can calculate like the diff and and you can get a huge chunk of change uh, back at the end by significantly increasing your um, energy rating on an old building that might otherwise not have any insulation, might have single pane win- windows, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, just make sure if you if you bring you make sure you bring your hers rater in before you demo. And then they'll, they'll do, they'll do a uh, blower door test and all that stuff. And then they'll come back after you finish. And you got to do this stuff anyway. So you might as well do it and capture the, the savings there. But as far as ease of a build, I would much prefer new construction. I mean, anytime you're dealing, you're, you're trying to match up old and new, it just becomes such a pain in the ass. And like... The new lumber versus the old lumber never matches up because the, you know you have true two buys versus the the two buys of today, and it's just it can be it just it's a pain. And then you're you're I don't know just the, dealing the with the old subfloors and I don't go ahead, Mark. The, the caveat to that is your earthwork, right? On a new build, I'd like to say that renos are far riskier and that you never know what's behind the walls, and we're always surprised by a fire that was covered up um, or a terrible settlement. Like sure. Those things are true, but new build is no panacea either, right? Like you've put the shovel in the ground and you encounter groundwater or you thought you had good, good bearing soil at nine or 10 feet, like we discussed, but in this part of the site, it's 20 feet, or there's a freaking Oldsmobile buried in the middle of your, your job that you're hitting dirty dirt. So I think that portion that of the phase, that phase of the build is utilities the risky. excavation foundations like get me through that and then give me like a nice clean platform to just frame off of and a hundred percent new build mm-hmm. for that reason my my favorite part of, of the build is actually the site like i i get very into the weeds when it comes to like geotechnical reports i i'm on the line with my civil engineer frequently like that's where i'm focused yeah, Ray, Ray's, Ray loves that part. I like that stuff. Too. Well, it's important because it, it, it's if you don't do that right, 
then the whole rest of the build could be. Well, it sets the, the no pun intended foundation right. for the rest of how your how your build's going to be. I mean, the two most important things are obviously the ground itself being structurally suitable for, you know, the soil can bear the weight and also making sure it's in the right spot. Because yeah. <laughs> there's been more than one story, not us, but more than one yeah. story that we've heard of, of foundations finding themselves in the wrong spot or being the wrong size. So never, never build to exactly to the lot line, front, backside, or rear. Just leave yourself a couple inches of margin because as much as surveying is a science, there's a little bit of an art to it always. You know, monuments move over time and uh, you just don't want anyone to ever question you and come up a half an inch to the wrong because it is black and white. I would prefer feet than inches, but that's yeah. just me. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes on an urban site. But uh, all right, I think we've, we've beat that one. So I'm, I'm going to pick a uh, new build. Same. I'm going to... Okay, so I will stick with new build in terms of if we're talking about getting the best possible product. But I will caveat that and say, Reno, if your acquisition costs are less than the new build costs, to your point, Mark, you brought up a very good point about all that site work and everything. So... I can't give you an answer. It depends. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, so stick built or panelized? So we should define panelized. Yeah. Because um, it means a lot of things. Um, to me, panelization typically comes in at much larger projects. Like you're not going to see a true panelized project until you're doing something like a podium build, a five over one. And you basically have a shop drawing process. And these wall panels, just like it sounds, are brought to the job and you have a crane on standby and they just sort of pick and pluck each different panel and they go together like a jigsaw puzzle. And there, it really does reduce the user error in framing. And um, Are these just exterior panels or are they all like, are they partition walls and everything? I mean, in theory, I guess you could do everything, but most typically it's just your bearing walls and your exterior walls. And then, you know, guys can more or less frame up the bathroom wall. So it's more of like a high, so panelized is more of like a hybrid between stick and, you know, it's partially stick and partially panelized. So it's like a a hybrid of modular, right? So modular will give you everything and most of it could be finished on the inside. But this is just the framing aspect of it. Yeah. And this question came from from Eric Fitzgerald over at 84. So I should give him a a shout out. He he called and we were chatting. He mentioned one other benefit that I hadn't quite considered, which is um, in a market where lumber is a commodity and lumber is going, you know, bananas, it's very volatile. Um, you, you You can control your costs a little better with a panelized application. Um, you know, it's you can lock your panel number with a manufacturer for 30 days. Maybe you could push them for 45 days in a less volatile environment, probably longer, but right now, at least you can have the benefit of that. Are there any downsides with panelizing though? Because if there's any measurements that are wrong or when you're starting to crane the pieces in, uh, how often is it that they may not fit? We have no experience with this particular method. So I don't know if you've got any that you can lean on. Absolutely. So uh, one, assume that you have room for a crane. A crane is expensive and it needs to be- That was my next thing is like, if you just, if you, the budget might, you know, and it's turned like, you know, police details and shutting down streets and stuff like that. Yeah. And you got to do the calculus on how long it's going to take you to frame up. There's certainly a schedule savings to going panelized, but there is a cost premium. I think that if you deliver loose lumber to a site and just have a bunch of framers ready to have at it, I personally think you save money. but 
you would have to weigh those savings again against your carry costs. So a lot to consider. And the last thing is on a complicated project. I know I was talking with with, uh, Hazen O'Neill recently, and they were just mentioning that if a builder is not going to go panelized, they actually want a third party to monitor the quality as, as the frame is going, or they'll, they'll require that they make more frequent site visits because guys just might not be used to all the different requirements of framing a project of this size and scale. I'll give you a quick one. Every stud needs to land right below a truss. If you have two trusses meeting on a bearing wall, you can't just go 24 inches on center with your, tr- with your studs. The stud needs to be below the truss so that it can carry that load directly down. And so a lot of framers might not be used to that. And they might go build 50% of the project and then realize that. So the quality control and the oversight needs to be there if you go uh, stick built. Nice. So to, so to that point. I'm still picking stick built. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to, to watch that. And plus, you can, you can audible things too, right? Like it's, it's <clears> Exactly. It's easier, to, it's easier to, to make changes in the field with stick. Yeah, we've done um, stick, so I'll stick with stick. Stick, stick, stick. Good, 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 good. We got a quick one from IG, drywall or plaster? Uh, now, this, so let's, let's do divide. people even use plaster outside of Boston, New England, or even just Massachusetts? Like, where, where is well, that? Connecticut. Line? I mean, on any, any commercial project of any real size and scale, you don't it's all do drywall. plaster. You drywall, you do level four or level five, tape, sand, finish. So why do we plaster? What is the point? I just think it's kind of like one of those. It's like a lost art. Yeah. Well, corollary to this is um, structural steel or, or concrete buildings. And, and again, the answer is regional. So Boston is all steel. We have like two to three major concrete companies and everywhere else in the country is, is concrete. And, and the reason is labor because... Um, Concrete tends to be more labor intensive, whereas a steel building goes up quick, but the material costs are higher. Well, I've seen actually lately, I mean, some of the some of the high rises that I've seen in Boston mm-hmm. have have been I've seen a kind of a yeah, there is a kind of a bunch of I I yeah, I've seen a lot of a lot more concrete built high rises in Boston versus the past, where it, as you said, it's been all steel. It's true. That is true. All right, so about drywall or plaster, I'm probably going to take plaster because I think it's a, it's a nicer finish and it's what all the smaller residential guys are going to be more comfortable and better pricing. I already know what Dan's answer is. Well, so no, I, I again, I think it depends on the size of the, the project, but right. from a, for a smaller one, plaster. All right, how about textured plaster in closets or smooth plaster finish? Do you Ooh. take the savings? No, the answer is no. Just smooth everywhere. I don't chase the 50 cents. I just think it's like an indication of quality. You know, there are certain things that a buyer sees and a buyer doesn't. And to me, it's like when they open the closet and they see that the walls are all that like, you know, look like my grandparents' condo in Florida with the spiralized thing going on. I just think it sucks. I don't think in a master closet, absolutely uh, smooth, but I I don't think it matters in like a regular general closet. I'll give you a mechanical room, but even a guest bedroom closet. No, I I disagree. I mean, I just feel that it doesn't like it doesn't matter because once stuff is in there, you're mm-hmm. not going to see any of the walls. Yeah, but when a buyer is walking through an open house, there's no coats in that closet. Yeah, but they're not going to make a decision on whether or not to buy the the unit based on if the closet is not smooth or textured. 
Yeah, but there are certain, it's like, it's like soft closed doors and drawers in a kitchen. You're not going to make the decision on that, but I feel like when you walk through and you open the door and it slams shut, it's just one of these small, ooh, the builder did this. What else? What else did that? I don't think there's enough other than you. I don't mm-hmm. think enough buyers <laughs> will actually even realize that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good one. Agree we didn't disagree. talk about, but we didn't talk about the benefits of plaster from like the finish standpoint. It's a smoother finish for the wall. It is. And also it can help with the sound. Did we not talk about those two? No, to tell about the sound. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know about the sound. Well, I feel like the sound, uh, when you're plastering, everything is getting, all of the gaps are getting filled. And and there's usually, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what the thickness is. It's probably more than a 16th. It's probably like an eighth of plaster. So it helps a, a little bit more than the drywall because the surface of the dry, most of the surface of the drywall isn't getting anything other than that mud and tape on the seams and the screw holes. Whereas with the blue board and plaster, the whole wall's getting a little bit thicker. I mean, I know it's not a lot, but it counts for something, no? Yeah, no, it does. And it's a higher end look. Um, custom glass showers or Dreamline? Uh, Dreamline being insert any generic off the shelf uh, shower that is sold at a, a big box store or otherwise. I don't even know if we've ever done that. I've done it. I custom, custom glass. I mean, I don't, what, do I, pay, I, what do you budget for a custom glass shower? Not your giant master bath showers, Dan, where you put a tub in the shower and there could be 17 people <laughs> in the shower. You're just talking about a walk-in shower. Yeah, like a, it, a five foot by three foot shower. It's, it's usually going to be like 15 to 1600 a shower. Yeah, I usually something like that. two grand and hope to do better. Um, also depends on depends so, on the type of hardware you used to. So yeah, look, right. I, I going back to the Dreamline thing. I I think you can get some pretty cool designs. That black gridded anodized shower in my place came from from a group like Dreamline. And if you have a standard sized shower, and you can take a standard unit from Home Depot, that two thousand dollars shower is probably closer to a thousand bucks. So um, there is some labor to install, but uh, maybe take the savings there. I'm going to go uh, Dreamline with, with those qualifications. Well, I have no experience with it, so I, I can't say anything. But I am looking at a photo of it. Would you get yours from Lowe's? Uh, no, actually, I, I bought it through uh, Shower Glass Door Company. They were oh, a okay. vendor. Their Shower Door Glass guys came, installed it. It was a bit of a savings. Yeah, I mean, it looks like what I see here is like, 500 bucks for do you guys. Do you guys pay for star-fired glass? This is a, a follow-up to that. Uh, yes, I think we do the the, entire finish. In the masters, definitely. Interesting. That's a good, so this is just one of those decisions that where we started this podcast, it's like, here's your price for the, for the shower, custom shower enclosure. Now, do you want to use Starfire glass? And it's like, well, what's the difference? So typically glass will have a little bit of a green tint to it and some buyer somewhere might realize it. No, if it's a real, if it's, if it's a, if it's. If it's cheap glass, it will be. It will definitely have more of just a, a tint of green. You'll see it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So it's kind of gross looking. Yeah. All right. Good. But what about that anti? What about that anti uh, soap scum finish they put on it? I, I don't. I'm not buying into it. Like the anti microbial stuff. I, I, I don't know if we. It's like Rain-X for your for your car, right? Like the water's supposed to bead off of it. I got that at my place, and three months later, it was soap scum everywhere. I don't even know if we've ever. I don't think we ever used that. Maybe right. it's just me. Maybe you're still supposed to wipe the shower down. So, so I picture you're still supposed to clean your shower, Ray. It's disgusting. 
That was <laughs> he's like, and it doesn't stop my drain do. from getting clogged. There's still yeah. hair in my drain. I don't get it. <laughs> Is that a manscaped? I haven't, I haven't cleaned my shower in like six months and it's just soap scum everywhere. Um, Moving on. <laughs> floating vanity or, oh no, I skipped one. Engineered hardwood or real hardwood. I, I like this question. Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. In New England, I am leaning now more towards engineered hardwood versus real. We used to do only real hardwood in all of our builds. And we started maybe about a year ago, we started doing engineered hardwood and so far, if, if you can protect it throughout the build and or wait till the very end to install it, I think that you will not have nearly as many complaints from buyers about it unless you have to start like replacing pieces or whatnot. But in New England, real hardwood with, with all of the swings in weather going from summer to winter, dry to humid, that wood is going to swell and it's going to, to shrink and you're going to get complaints. And then anything wider than I think four, anything wider than four and a quarter inches, forget it in real hardwood. I think if you want to get the wide, uh, do like wide plank flooring, you got to go engineered. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important consideration. Um, and what typically makes it difficult to install, wait until the very end to install your pre-finished engineered hardwood uh, is your kitchens, in my opinion. It's, you know, I guess you could set your, your island uh, up on a piece of three-quarter inch plywood. And, and we've done that, but um, it's not very desirable, right? Like someone goes to renovate their unit or move that island in some way, shape, or form, and then there's a piece of plywood exposed under it. Um, it's nice to run your floors continuously. So here's what we've done with the engineered with that. We we have done, we've have installed. So we'll order a couple hundred square feet of the engineered wood and actually run it to where to maybe we'd run it to just under where your toe kick is installed. Yeah. So that way, when you finish the install, you will have a small seam there, mm-hmm. but your toe kick, because of the cut, but your toe kick will cover it. So at least I'll still be able to get that engineered wood under the island or under the kitchen. And that way I'm still able to install it, you know, and, and get the same look other than just doing plywood and still be able to use engineered. The only other caveat to engineered is a lot of hardwood floor installers would prefer to install your base after the floor. So that way you're, mm-hmm. so you're still not really waiting till the very end. You still have to bring your finished guy back. And that's and actually a great this or that baseboards before the floor or after the floor. <laughs> Dan, you were saying how you, how you handle under the kitchens, under yeah. the islands to be specific. You're, you're just running that engineered pre-finished past the toe kick. No, right, right before the toe kick. So that way, because there's going to be a seam if you're, depending on which way you're running your floors. So there'll be a small seam because there's going to be a cut there um, on one side or the other. Because when, when your floor guy comes back to finish, he's going to continue on one side. But then what, if you have an island, once you get to the island, there's going to be a cut, right? Yeah, but so I, that seam, go ahead. I don't understand. Like, so you're, you're not putting any flooring underneath your island then? Damn. Well, then why not just run all your floors and then set your island on top of it? 
because then you have to go through the rest of the builds with the floor. The floor it's, it's protecting preserve, them. Yeah, yeah, it's to preserve the floors. And what Dan is saying is that by hiding it underneath the island, yeah. when the flooring contractor comes back to finish it, whatever width of the floor that might be, like you can have two uneven pieces and you won't see it. It'll Wait, line so, up nicely. So you're doing so, a separate mobilization and you're bringing the floor guy in early to apply the pre-finished flooring just underneath places like the island, such that- And, and, the, ca- and the cabinets. And the primary run of cabinets. And Correct. in doing so, it allows you to not have to worry so much about protecting that solid, that, that finished surface for the rest of the build. Exactly. I just basically have a bare subfloor for the rest of the build. And he's literally the last one to come in. And then I have my painter come in and do his touch-ups. And to prevent, sorry, I'm dense, but, and to prevent it from looking like one- clean cut line or a seam, you have them like kind of uh, feather out the flooring to, to right behind the, the toe kick? So on one side, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, obviously he's going to run it from left to right or right mm-hmm. to left, however he's going to do it. So, you know, when he comes back for the second mobilization, when he continues the run from one side or the other, there's going to be, you know, if you have a five inch you know, engineered floor where, you know, where you've already installed it on the other side, there might be like a two, only a two or three inch cut, right. For that last piece to fit it in between the Island and that piece. But if you, if you install the Island side, just under the toe kick, that seam or that small cut will get covered by the toe kick. So it doesn't look any different and it will just continue under. I mean, obviously if you remove your Island and replace your Island, you're going to see that seam, but at least you're still going to have engineered floors under there. Brilliant. So, yeah. Or you could uh, always replace it if you did rip it up, I guess, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess we're all heading in the same direction on this one. But uh, I guess a quick summary, my opinion, the benefits of the pre-finished engineered uh, one, it's more dimensionally stable in a climate that has really wild swings, uh, summers to winters to fall. Two, I think that you know what you're going to get. It's easier to pre-market. You can get a little sample. And then three, cost. I think that it's, it's probably a savings relative to finishing it in place. It's less labor. I usually spend, I like to throw to use numbers where we can, but for a pre-finished engineer hardwood, I, I would budget between $3.50 a foot to $5 a foot. That's just material. Yes, that's just the material. Yeah. What do you think? Another buck fifty a foot uh, for install? Yeah, maybe a little bit more because you're probably gonna have, you know, stairs involved that he's still gonna have to sand and stain potentially or finish. Yeah. Um, so I think. You know, we're in the same boat, three fifty to four dollars a foot for the material. And all in, we're probably maybe like six bucks a foot, six fifty a foot, you know, for materials and labor versus real wood. If I'm doing four and a quarter inch white oak, mm-hmm. it's probably gonna run me maybe seven, seven twenty-five a foot mm-hmm. materials and labor. So I think one pro tip on um pre-finished flooring is that uh, one, you can surgically replace. So if, if a board does get damaged or dinged, you don't need to finish corner to corner. You can just come in and take those boards out and piece the others in. The other thing I would absolutely do on a, on a especially if you're doing a resale, for a rental, you can definitely float it. But mm-hmm. for resale, you absolutely either want to nail it or glue it. You get a, much, glue it. Much, you get a much more solid 
Well, that's it, it another, just, just, that's probably another this or that glue. Yeah. Or <laughs> I was, you yeah. guys beat me to it. Amazing. I was waiting. I was waiting for a break in the conversation, but yeah, I wanted yeah. to, I want to say float or glue, but I would glue hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, another this or that we could do real quick on just the real hardwood side is just getting it, uh, get the wood delivered and then finish on site or get the pre-finished because. Uh, I mean, yeah, you, you have the whole acclimation process, right? If you mm-hmm. get the wood's the natural- more stable. Pre-finished hardwood, you get the package, you can rip it open and install it. Uh, natural hardwood, you really need to let it sit and acclimate. But uh, one last pro tip as far as the, the pre-finished, a challenge of pre-finished is that if you have things like window sills or a handrail or a staircase, and you, you want to match that stain to the pre-finished floor. I actually found this guy, he uh, calls himself the Finnish Stain Doctor. And if you send him a piece of the finished, pre-finished floor, he'll mix up something to match it and send it back to you. Yeah, it's almost like going to match a paint sample at like Ben Moore or something. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's pretty cool. That's a really cool. Yeah, because yeah. that is one of the challenges, right? They, you know, they sell, you know, they'll sell like nosing match. They'll typically sell matching nosing and things like that. But when it comes to the actual treads themselves, it's like it's and ra- railings and things like that. If you want to try to match that color. When, uh, you know, stools, window stools uh, is something that I've done um, and it's, it can be difficult. So I, I think that that's a like good- benches, window benches. No, like an interior windowsill, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry. But I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Um, I, I think we're all in agreement there that uh, pre-finished engineered hardwood over real hardwood. Yes. Agree. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so let's pick this back up on, on a second episode. We'll continue back through finishes, talk a little about exterior products, uh, maybe some structural considerations. And um, thank you to everyone for, for listening uh, and for supporting the podcast. And all the Thanks, suggestions. Yeah. 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 Really appreciate and happy, it. happy new year. That's right. Oh, this thing um, will be out after the new year. <laughs> well, happy new year to you guys. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Thank you Ray. Well, that, that was Dan talking. Take care, everybody, and we'll uh, we'll see you on the next one.